Welcome to The Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Barrett Brooks. I'm the COO at ConvertKit. My co-host is our CEO, Nathan Barry. We're on a mission to help creators earn a living, and this is a show about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. All right, everyone, welcome to episode 89 of The Future Belongs to Creators. Today, I'm joined by two incredible co-hosts as we talk about Airbnb as a business, as a side hustle for creators. So I'm joined by Alyssa and Tyler. Alyssa, why don't you say hi and share what you do at ConvertKit? Hello, my name is Alyssa Doolin and I'm the deliverability lead at ConvertKit. So I help make sure your emails go to the inbox and stay out of the spam folder. Awesome. Tyler? Yes, I am Tyler Knutson. I am a product marketer at ConvertKit. So there's lots of different things under that umbrella, but one of the more notable ones is when the product and engineering team create new features for our current creators or people that aren't ConvertKit users yet. It's my job to make sure those people find out about those features and then come and use ConvertKit forever and ever. Amen. Good stuff. Well, we're talking today because we've all run Airbnb businesses on the side from our main hustles. So we'll get into that, but we have to kick it off with red, yellow, green. It just wouldn't be an episode without it. I'm green today, except I'm slightly losing my voice because I've, this is like my fifth hour of talking already today. But other than that, I'm green. We had a great feature release at ConvertKit today where ConvertKit Commerce is out in, what, 30 countries or something? It's a lot. 33. 33. Count on the marketer to bring it in. So I'm green. Excited to talk about all of this. Tyler, how about you? Yeah, I think I'm feeling green. Everything in 2020, you always present with a question mark like that, right? I think I'm... It's a different scale. We're on a 2020 scale, and it's different than the previous decade. Yeah. Yes. So we will not compare to, to previous years or decades. Just today, in this moment, I'm feeling green with a slight question mark. Just had a great weekend. It's been weirdly nice here. Way too late. I'm in... Milwaukee, Wisconsin, we don't deserve 70 degree weather this late. So we're getting it a little extra, a little extra good weather for us here. Good stuff. Alyssa, how you doing? I'm also pretty green. Had a good weekend. My husband and I binged The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, which is about chess and it's so good. And so now we are playing chess and we just started a game right before this during my lunch break and it's really fun. So that's been a nice little thing to start doing. Nice. Yeah, Hillary and I started watching The Queen's Gambit and it felt like it just dove right in. I mean, it started with a little like flashback to her as a child, but it was just dove right in. And we're like, okay, you can introduce some characters at some point. Then we turned it off because it was time to go to bed. And we realized we started on episode six. Oh. <laughs> so someone else is using our Netflix account, probably one of her siblings. And we just hit play. And, and anyway, that's why it didn't make sense. So we need to start at the beginning. Yeah. There's got to be some parallel there with chess and like starting out you're thinking six moves ahead, right? Like that's what you were trying to do. That's right. We were already into the end game and yeah, it was too early. It's awesome. Let's talk Airbnb. I'd love to hear from each of you. What made you get started doing something with Airbnb? Tyler, you go first since you've been doing it since 2012. Is that right? Yeah. What that was just like five minutes ago or five millennia ago. Yeah. Started in 2012. The motivator was... I had just finished grad school and there's this little, if anybody's ever like has student loans and you finish school, there's this little bit of a lull right after it's like a, I don't know what they call it, a grace period or something. I think it's usually six months you have before you start owing to start paying those loans back. I didn't want to wait that full six months to start thinking about, you know, getting a job like you're supposed to go do after that or making the money from that to have to go back and pay. 
So also during that lull, I lived in Eugene, Oregon with my then fiance, now wife, and they happened to be hosting the Olympic trials that summer. We can get into this later too, but there's a little bit of like a supply and demand piece, whether it's permanent or temporary around being an Airbnb host. And so there was this like temporary false demand that was insane. There was way, like Eugene, Oregon is not a very big city, but yet between the athletes and support staff and media and everybody else that kind of flocks to a, a city that's having hosting an Olympic trials for, this was for track and field specifically, there was just not enough supply for people that needed to stay in the area. So that worked out perfectly for me having an apartment that I could rent out and having classmates that would, you know, we could stay together and that could make my place available, right? So that's what we did. We cleaned up the place really well and put like whatever we thought should be in a listing out there. It helped that I had like a background in marketing because there were no resources at the time for like, here's how to write a headline or your photos or whatever. It helped that I knew that like, all right, we need to make the cover of the book kind of appealing here. But Put out my first listing, uh, set the bar pretty high from a pricing standpoint because we had a little time before the dates that were booking. So I thought I could back it down in case I had gone too high. I put it out there and immediately got two bookings for the 10 day period to cover the whole 10 day period. One of them was like a spectator, like a father and son that were spectating that just like followed track and field and were like, you know, super fans. Another one was an athlete and her trainer that were coming to stay for the week. So right away out of the gate, it was like two listings and a thousand bucks in my pocket, which went immediately to the loan collector for the student loan. But that kind of jump-started not only my student loan payments, but more excitingly, my career as a, or it's the kind of side hustle as a, a Airbnb host. I like it. I actually have a little bit of a similar story. I've always wanted to do it because I enjoyed staying at Airbnbs. And the first time that I hosted with Airbnb, we bought a larger farm where we live now. So this was three years ago and it had a little guest house. The property was more expensive than I wanted to pay, you know, and so the mortgage was higher and it's all this. But then the guest house was like, oh, I could actually make all of that back with this little 500 square foot house. And we got it ready and needed some remodel. And so I spent a couple months getting it ready. And then I put it live. And I figured I'd start at a low price, right? There's no reviews. We'll put it live. We'll collect reviews. I put it live late on like a Friday night. Turning it on was last thing I did. And then I went to bed and I woke up in the morning and it already had two bookings. And I was like, what is going on? I mean, these bookings were for the next day and the day after. So two things were going on in my life that I did not put together. One is I was getting an Airbnb ready to go online. The other is that I was headed out of town about an hour and a half north the next day to watch the solar eclipse. And so without realizing this, I mean, hotels in Boise were going for $400 a night. Everything was sold out. Campsites were going for $100 a night or more. And within an hour, hour and a half drive of the eclipse, I put my place online for like $125 a night. Even though I was headed up to my mom's place like an hour north to go camp and watch the eclipse. Two people were absolutely thrilled that they got their bookings in. And then I learned about supply and demand and seasonality and how you should be aware of what's going on in your local area when you price your Airbnb. So my main Airbnb has been that little guest house and it's been pretty fun over the last three years. I haven't made that mistake again. But then on the other side, we've done some more Airbnbs that we can get into more. Tyler, did you have something? You looked like... No, I just kind of always look like that, but <laughs> I'm thinking we're going to head towards hearing... We'd love to hear like Alyssa's kind of origin story too. Yep. Yeah. Well, I just got started, so I feel like I'm the newbie here, but it is something I also just kind of always wanted to do. 
had no idea how to get started. And then, you know, 2020 came around and my husband, Thomas, is in the music industry and a lot of his income comes from touring. So it just was kind of a wake up call of like, we should probably like diversify our income and think about other things. He dove in and really started researching everything related to real estate investing. And then he heard a podcast interview with someone named Avery Carl. She's amazing. And she does exactly what we've started to do, which is having short-term vacation rentals in markets where people go visit. And you wouldn't get a hotel in these markets. When you go to these places, you get a beach house or you get a cabin. And so we've pretty much learned, it feels like everything from her, whatever I talk about today will probably be something I learned from her. But we both loved what she had to say and worked with her to purchase a cabin in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And it's been so much fun. I am having all these memories, you all talking about getting your first bookings. It was so similar for us. We put it up and we're so nervous and our phones were just buzzing and buzzing and new booking, new booking. And it was crazy. We put ours live and we're ready to accept bookings the night we closed, which I don't think I would have done that. If I could go back in time, that's the one thing I wouldn't have done. It caused a lot of stress, but we were eager to get started. Yeah. So let's dive into some of those. Alyssa, the reason this topic came up is that you had shared a bunch with the ConvertKit team. And so like, oh, let's pull together and turn it into a podcast. You want to dive in and show maybe some of the revenue numbers and then also tell us a little more about your listing? Yeah, for sure. And I am going to be the overachiever. I'm going to share my screen. I have some slides. Nathan and Tyler don't have slides. So I just want you all to know that ahead of time. Thank you for setting the bar appropriately low for Tyler and I. You're welcome. Okay, let's see. Hopefully this works. Do you all see my screen with slides? Yes, we do. Perfect. First, I'm going to actually go to my listing. This is our cabin in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And if you're not familiar with where that is, we live in Nashville. So it's like a three and a half hour drive from Nashville. The ConvertKit team actually had a retreat there not too long ago, or at least pretty close. So it's right on the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And one thing we love about our cabin is that you can actually walk both downtown and to the park, which I think makes it more successful, which is great. So y'all can go to this if you want on your own time. Our short link is airbnb.com slash H slash happy little cabin. Thought that was cute. It's great. It's a one bedroom, one and a half bathroom cabin. And I will get into numbers because that's the fun stuff. So present so far. We have all five-star ratings, but I'm sure that will change. I've been told that it's okay to have four or three stars. I'm sure I'll be sad when it happens, but I know it'll happen. It's okay. Our occupancy and average nightly rate has fluctuated. So we got the cabin in September. We started with our prices pretty low because I was just scared and I wanted to get as many bookings as possible. So we had an average nightly rate of around 156 in September. We've since just bumped it up more and more and more. And we found that it's totally fine to do that. In October, we had 100% occupancy. November, we only really have a few nights open and those might get taken last minute. That's one thing we found that if you just keep your prices high, someone will book them. It just might take a while. And then I have gross payouts listed. I know if you're listening over podcasts, you can't see those. So I'll just cite a few numbers. So in October, the gross payout from Airbnb was $7,458. November, $6,700. December so far is more like $5,600, but that will go up. We just had someone book Christmas just right before this podcast, which is a very high nightly rate. So that will go up, which is great. How much did you charge for Christmas versus the other, you know, the week before or the week after? Yeah. So we did Christmas Eve, Christmas around then um, $350 a night, which honestly, we probably could have gone higher. I just 
didn't want to, <laughs> I don't know, I wanted to stay a little low. Yeah. Usually our, you know, our nightly rate now is around two to two fifty, depending on the season. Yeah, I was gonna say with those occupancy rates, you could probably bump prices a decent amount. Yeah, exactly. I think we can. I was nervous at first that if we had our rates super high, people would have really, really high expectations and we'd get lower ratings. Yeah. But I'm finding that as long as you're really descriptive in your listing and you don't, you know, make any false promises and you're really upfront about what to expect, I don't think that happens. At least we haven't had it happen. Yeah, that's good. So Our recurring expenses, I won't run through all of them, but our mortgage for the cabin is around $1,400. And our recurring monthly expenses end up being with mortgage right around $2,000. Of course, with our initial setup, there were just random things. We had a bear incident. There are so many bears. They got into the trash. (laughs) We had to fix it. So there's been random things that come up. But running all the numbers, which is Thomas, my husband's territory, but I got it all from him. So we're expecting an annual kind of cash flow net income of $23,000 from this one bedroom cabin. And we're not touching any of that. We just want it to go into our next one. So you're already planning more. I like it. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're ready. So those are my numbers. Do y'all want to share some of yours? I'd love to hear what did you pay for the cabin? Yeah. So the cabin was $350,000. Do you want me to tell you how I got it? Or do we want to wait? Sure. Yeah, that is, that's interesting. Let's dive into that. And also wait, your mortgage... Seems really cheap for that price of cabin. Yes, I can pull up the number. I believe our interest rate is 2.7%. Crazy. Our mortgage payment is pretty low. It's great. So I can dive into how we made that happen because I know that's like my family and friends and everybody was like, how do you buy a second house? Like, did you win the lottery? Did something crazy happen? No, I think it's really crazy how it all worked out. And hopefully some people could use this strategy. I know it doesn't work for everyone, but there were essentially two things that made it possible for us So the first thing is a cash out refinance on our primary home in Nashville. So because Nashville has appreciated so much, our home has gone way up in value just over the last four years. So we purchased our home for $190,000 in 2016. And then this year it was appraised for $300,000. So we were able to pull out $43,000 in cash through that cash out refinance. And the interest rate went down and our mortgage payment went down as well. So that was all wonderful. And then the second amazing thing that anyone can use is that since this is a second home, you can get a vacation home loan to purchase it. And you only have to put a 10% down payment on those vacation home loans. Of course, there are some like terms you should look up. I'm not a lawyer. I think you have to stay there, you know, 14 days out of the year, which is fine for us. There are all kinds of things. So do your research. But that means for the cabin, our cash to close ended up being $42,400. And we got 43000 from the cash out refinance. I think we ended up using maybe like $400 out of our savings for this cabin. And that was just to get linens and towels and random little things stocked up because it came fully furnished. So it's pretty much like the cheapest investment ever that has a huge return on investment. That's amazing. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of that. Tyler, I'd love to hear some of your story of you taking a bit of a different angle of not going with a dedicated house, but over the years renting out your primary place, right? Right. Yep. So that's that's all we've ever done is we've been kind of what I'll call just like the opportunist hosts, my wife and I, in that we haven't gone so far as to have people stay with us while we're there. That's for some people. It's just not for us. Yep. And, you know, Airbnb and a lot of the platforms will accommodate that too. But we took the route of what I think is still one of the easiest ways to get started, which is rent the place you live in. Just don't be there and make that space available, whatever that means for you. So for us, it was kind of the extension of that origin story of the Eugene, Oregon piece. 
After that summer, we moved back to the Midwest and into Chicago into a fairly popular neighborhood near like Wrigley Field on the north side of Chicago. We were close enough to family and whatnot, which is back up in Wisconsin, that we would go visit a lot. We would take either the weekend or sometimes a long weekend and just leave our apartment in Chicago empty. And so putting two and two together, my like brain from the past listing in Oregon, that was like we kind of had to make ourselves scarce to make that place available and like shack up with some friends for a little bit. This was like, hey, we're already leaving two or three weekends a month. Yeah. And then, you know, Alyssa, you're talking about like holiday rent or Nathan, you're talking about holiday rentals or like just seasonality. And like if there's a big events like the Eclipse piece. Well, a big city like Chicago has that kind of stuff all the time. People coming and going for holidays or just big events, whether it's sports or concerts or festivals or whatever. So we were able to kind of coordinate when we would leave around what kind of the 80-20 principle where that was in favor of us. So if there was like some huge concert coming to Wrigley Field or a Cubs playoff game or just like a rivalry game that we knew was going to bring people to town. Baseball is a great one because they play like two, three, four game series, usually over like a Thursday through Sunday. Yeah. So I was able to look ahead and say, hmm, well, we've got our choice of leaving town. We're probably going to go visit family, you know, either the second or third weekend in July anyways. You know, let's look at the Cubs schedule and see who's coming to town. So that, that we would kind of make our decision based on, well, if the Nationals are coming to town, we can probably stick around. That's not going to draw as much of a crowd and a price point as, you know, when one of the Cubs' big rivalries is the St. Louis Cardinals. Like when they come to town, that's a big rivalry. St. Louis is pretty close. So lots of people come up and it's pretty wild in that neighborhood. So we were able to get a lot more for renting even that short time period. So we would really only rent our place out maybe two, maybe three weekends a month. And then you throw in like some weird Thanksgiving stretches or Christmas stretches or Christmas into New Year's. So the way that played out from a dollars standpoint is I kind of did a year by year, at least for the first couple of years here. Those first two bookings brought in $1,000 in Eugene, Oregon. That was in the year one. In year two, which was kind of a partial year, once we kind of got this up and running at our new apartment in Chicago, we just had five bookings, but for $1,500. So it was like, you know, that was definitely the 80-20 of we're able to pull, what is that, $300 a night on average or $300 per booking, I guess that is. And then year three, we ramped it up. So we had 20 bookings, which still like someone like Alyssa is going to have 20 bookings in a month sometimes if they're shorter, like because she's got that full availability all month. 20 bookings was a lot for us in our third year, and that was $8,300. I think it's a good example of it's easy to get started unless you're willing to check up with a friend almost every day of the month. There's definitely more of a ceiling from an earnings potential on this side, but it's a great way to get started because most people have a place to live. There's some like permissions hurdles that you want to make sure that you're taken care of based on whether you own or rent or lease or whatever. But that was kind of the first three years. And then from there, it was kind of similar that kind of like 14 bookings one year, 25 in another year. So all around that kind of like 200 to $300 a night range, which on the few times that we rented it out, you know, we were just leaving town anyways for something else. Yeah. It wasn't like a big event or something. Kind of our standard nightly rate was down closer to like 150 a night or something. We're talking about like, a, this is like a two bedroom apartment that's being kind of subleased out through Airbnb. So different economics, but I think we were talking about this just before we went live too, between Alyssa and the way that we kind of run our Airbnbs and then the way you, Nathan, do it. I think that's a good kind of runs the gamut of different ways that you can get started hosting or ramp up or scale up and make it like a true side hustle or second form of income like you're doing, Alyssa, to kind of provide that stability too. Yeah, that's good. It's interesting that you earned quite a bit from that, you know, and especially when you think about just leaving on these premium nights. I think, yeah, as you're looking at the different options, we kind of identified four levels. One is renting at your current place, whether you're there or not. 
Next would be where we got started, which is renting out an apartment or a mother-in-law quarters or something like that on your property. And if you're looking to buy something, I would definitely look for you know the ability to add that. We have other friends at ConvertKit, Elizabeth, who she had a tiny house built and placed that in her backyard and they run that full time and it's going incredibly well. She said that we could share their numbers. They spent just over $50,000 to have the tiny house built and it's now bringing in thousands a month in income. You know, it's paying for their mortgage on their main house and the tiny house because it was an RV or the tiny house is certified as an RV. They could get an RV loan for it. And so they're just paying that monthly payment. So they basically are paying $500 a month in order to get thousands a month in income. So it's pretty incredible. And then up from there, right, would be, Alyssa, what you did of having the dedicated house for it, the vacation home. That next level is one that I've done over the last year, which is buying a large property for Airbnb. So I'll walk through a little bit of that. This is one of the listings. So basically we bought a fourplex in Nampa, which is a city 20 minutes from Boise. There's a college right there, which we expected to bring in revenue, but like graduation was canceled this year and you know a whole bunch of stuff. It didn't turn out quite as we expected. But basically this building was pretty run down, built in the 70s, not in great shape. And I did this with two partners, Patrick and Philip. And so Patrick did all the construction and rehabbed the entire place. And then Philip managed a lot of the business side of it. And so there's four units. They're all pretty similar and two bedroom, one and a half bathrooms. And on the revenue side, just pulling this up. So we got started, I guess we had our first bookings in December. December and January were slow. Winter's always slow here. And we had just one unit online and then a second one and up from there. But in September and October, we're making 11000 and maybe even as high as 11500 in October. Airbnb has some weird reporting things where we're waiting. Like they messed up the reporting for the month of October for us. But what's interesting is if we were to long-term rent this building, I think we'd make about 3400 a month in revenue. This way we're making like 11000 a month in peak revenue. And then I think we'll make maybe 7000 8000 in the winter months. And so it should average... 9,000 a month, which is pretty wild. And so we've actually gone on from here and bought another fourplex that we haven't had time to remodel yet. And that's going to go online soon. And then we bought the property next door to us. We're on a farm here in Boise. We always wanted to pick up the farm next door. And so we have that. We actually just had our first stay there. And one thing that's interesting, I'm so used to charging, say, 80 to $130 a night which is kind of the range that these other properties that we have, right? They're not in a destination vacation place or anything like that. And then now we have this big house that is a five bedroom house and we're charging $300 a night. And it's just like, wow, that adds up really quick. You know, you see like these three stays get booked in the month and you're already at like, I don't know, two grand in revenue for the month. And you're like, oh, there's something to this expensive, like (laughs) charge more prices. So anyway, that's just a few things that we've learned. But basically just ramping up everything that we're doing. And I think maybe four months from now, we'll have 13 units on Airbnb between all the various properties. We know the expenses are like the lion's share of the expenses is that mortgage payment. So yeah, you mentioned what you're bringing in for that new biggest property. Do you want to share what your monthly like outlay for mortgages? And then we kind of know that some degree below that is all the kind of ongoing maintenance, insurance, all that stuff. Yeah. So we're interested in paying off our properties as quickly as possible. So we do 15-year mortgages. Interest rates are absurd. One of them ended up being a cash out refinance because we bought it with cash because it had it was in bad shape. So banks wouldn't loan on it. So we bought the property, that fourplex for 330000 
And then we remodeled it and then took it to the bank and refinanced it, basically. I thought that was super clever. Turns out that if you buy something in advance, the banks are like, oh, great, here's a great rate on it. But then if you go to take a property you bought in cash and go to refinance it, they're like, ooh, that's a cash out refinance on a multifamily investment property that gives you the worst rate, which the worst rate was still 3.6 or 3.7%. So compared to like years ago, that's amazing. But like this new property that we bought just next door, we got 2.125 on a 15 year, which is just insane. It's basically free money, but we still do 15 years so that we can pay them off quickly. And that's part of the wealth building aspect of it. On the fourplex, the payment is just under 3000 a month. And then we have about another 1000 a month in all the other expenses combined. And that's with you purposely kind of structuring that to accelerate the payoff versus maximize your revenue minus expenses today at this very, this very month. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's all kinds of different models. It's fun to see what we all have here. If someone was getting started and they're like listening to this and they're like, okay, I'm going to do that. What advice would you give to them? Open question. Open to the floor. I think a good fundamental place to start is something that's kind of been woven throughout what we've talked about here is kind of decide what type of host you want to be. That could be what type of property you already have access to or could get access to through some of the means that we've talked about here with cash out refinance or some other way of coming across properties. There's also a whole like co-hosting program on Airbnb. So if you know someone that has a property that doesn't necessarily want to run it, that could be another kind of partnership opportunity where they give you full reign over their listing, but they still are kind of a co-host on it. So there's lots of ways to do it, but decide what kind of host you want to be, what you want your time commitment to be, because we kind of run the gamut here for that as well. Whether we're doing things hands-on versus, I don't know if Alyssa, I don't know if you spoke to this. I'm talking about how you're handling, you know, having it managed, right? Like, do you have to be down the street every time somebody runs out of toilet paper? But you know, there's all those considerations. So do you want to be the hands-on host? Do you want to completely source it out? Do you want to be somewhere in between? You know, decide what kind of host you want to be, I think is important up front. And then also then decide what kind of guests you want to host as opposed to, and we talk about this a lot with all kinds of other stuff in marketing. So this is my marketing nerd brain being turned on, but like, who are you for and who aren't you for? Yeah. Which I think if you're not used to thinking that way, a lot of times you can get into thinking, well, I want to be for everyone, right? Like I want to be for all 7 billion people in the world, right? Because that gives me my biggest chance at reaching people. And what we found with whether it's with software or with Airbnb or with anything is you're much better off creating your listing and creating kind of how you provide your hospitality and service based on a specific like persona of person. You know, I'll give you an example. Somebody I know, a friend of mine that has done an Airbnb's It was a two-bedroom place. The bedrooms were in the front and back of the property with all the kind of common area stuff in between. They ended up figuring out it was great for couples who were traveling together, but you kind of want privacy when you're, you know, staying in for the night or whatever. You don't necessarily want bedrooms to be adjacent. It was perfect for that because it kind of gave you that privacy while still staying together. He just spun his entire listing as great for couples. And all the things that were listed as like amenities and places to go check out in the area were those that were great for couples, right? So it extends beyond just like the headline saying great for couples, right? That's kind of an example of figure out who you're for and then kind of model all of your your listing and the things you provide people around that. And then I think the inverse example of that is who aren't you for? So for instance, something I've seen people do a lot, we did this, we've always done this to try to avoid kind of like the party crowd. If you're in an area where people are going to come for a party, and that's something you don't want to host. If you're for that, great, make that who you're for and cater to it. But if you're not for that, rather than just crossing your fingers that nobody books your place for a party, you can do things like cap your capacity at a certain level 
we would always cap ours at four. It just didn't feel like much of a party to me. Yeah. I think that fifth person really brings the party. I don't know. It was just kind of an arbitrary piece, right? But like every party I've ever been at or have heard of that, you know, might have gotten out of control or broken things or all the things we were afraid of have been larger than that. So not only just capping it at four people, but there's things you can do like rather than just saying it's four people, you can say you allow extra people. It's just that extra person is going to be an extra $300 a night. It sounds like some like comical, right? But that actually does give you some recourse because if you say you're four people, but you have no extra person charge because, you know, hopefully nobody books that extra. Right. And then somebody does come and stay with a fifth or a sixth extra person and you can prove it. Airbnb might give you some reparations, but they want just everybody to get along in harmony. So they're not known for doing that. But if you have something in writing that says, yeah, my extra person charge is actually $300 a night per person and you had seven people in here, then you actually have some recourse when it comes to the Airbnb resolution that you might come to. This kind of all goes back to deciding who you are as a host and what kind of host you want to be. And then what kind of guests do you want to host? Pick some specific ones and don't necessarily worry about turning off anybody who's not that person. If you pick right and you pick for your area, you're still going to fill up and you're probably going to book quicker because you're really appealing to that audience versus just saying, this is a great place for anybody to stay. Eh, people will scroll right by you and find something more interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. The pricing thing, I think, makes a big difference because we have those Airbnbs in Nampa. It's a relatively inexpensive area. The building was inexpensive. And so those are in, say, the $90 to $120 a night range. And then Patrick, my partner on that, has another Airbnb. He converted his detached garage. And it's like maybe a mile away. And he rents that out because it's this little 250 square foot studio. And so he rents that out for between, say, $50 and $70 a night. And even though it's the same market, you know, relatively similar price points, like he deals with a lot more problem guests than we do on the other ones because that higher price just filters out a category of people. And I'm hoping that as we now have this even bigger Airbnb, that we'll have the same thing. Alyssa, have you found anything on filtering out guests? Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's hear about that. Then I want to hear about how you manage it from hours away. Oh, yeah. Both good questions. So again, I learned this strategy from Avery Carl, but it has worked really well for us. So first of all, keep your prices high. A lot of people do notice that if they start to discount their prices, the quality of guests just happens to go down. So we keep our prices high. Like I said, at least if you are in a market where people are going on vacation, you know, if you're using the same strategy as me, you're going to get booked. It just might take a little longer. But one other thing that's helped a lot is kind of deterring guests who seem like they might be an issue. So I have one example. I've only had to do it once and it wasn't even that big of a deal, but I had someone instantly book with us and it was three adults. And our place is again, a one bedroom, but it has a pullout couch, which is totally fine. We've had multiple adults, but then after she booked with us, she was just sending me a ton of questions. And one of the questions was how many bedrooms does it have? I'm like, you didn't read the listing before you booked with us. And that's just a huge red flag. And they started asking about pets, which again, we allow, but that's all in writing. So it was telling me that like, she hasn't read our listing at all. She is a little needier and that's just not what I want. I'm spending like seven minutes a week, 10 minutes a week on this. So I just politely was like, oh man, it's only a one bedroom. And you know, it's not even really a bedroom. It's a loft. It's open. I don't know if you all will be comfortable here. And that's just like a great line. If you are getting the sense that someone's not going to be happy or they're going to take up a lot of your time, just give them a reason that they're not going to be comfortable in a nice, kind way. And it works. She was like, yeah, you're right. I don't think we will be like, we really need more bedrooms. So she canceled and it was great. So that's a good strategy to use. 
Nice. How about the remote management side of things? What do you do there? Yes, that's been so helpful. So we have automated pretty much everything. We personally use your porter to automate all of our messaging. So we send you an email, you know, an Airbnb message right after you book, 48 hours before you come with the door code and all of that during your stay to check in. And then after your stay to tell you, you know, we loved hosting you. We've left you a five-star review. We hope you'll do the same, which has been really great. So a lot of times I don't actually talk to any of our guests. They completely are on their own or maybe they'll respond to our automated messages with a nice thing, but usually I don't really have to talk to anyone. We have great cleaners. I think that's the absolute number one thing you need. Find a good team of cleaners. Ours actually stock the place with toilet paper, paper towels, soap, dish soap, all the good stuff. So I don't have to worry about stocking things. They're amazing. They're doing a good job. They'll let me know if they see anything wrong. And I would say they're kind of your eyes and ears. So along with, you know, the cleaners handling all the turnover and stocking and then our automated systems, I hardly have to do anything, which is really the goal. One piece of advice I'd give to someone getting started is treat your first one like you have 20. So we put a ring camera up. And at first I was tempted to just like look at every motion and just see what's going on or, you know, kind of just spend more time on the Airbnb than I even needed to. It wouldn't make any difference in the success of it. So I had to tell myself, like, imagine I have 20 right now. I wouldn't be looking at cameras or whatever. So that's been a really good mindset shift. Nice. That's good. Is 20 in the plans? Yes. Like you said, number two is in the plan. Okay. We would love to have that right now because we can't use, you know, the cash out refinance again. Right. Or the, in Gatlinburg, at least we can't use the 10% vacation down payment because you can only have one in a market. So as soon as we have funding for our next fund, like we're doing it. We love it. So one thing that people asked me over chat or over Twitter before we did all of this was talking about the pandemic. Say in June, people would be like, oh, you were doing Airbnbs. How's that going? You know, and it's like very much a leading question. Like, remember how you were all hot on this idea before? And then like a global pandemic and everyone stopped traveling, you know, and they have this assumption that like now it's going terribly. And so I'll share our experience that in March, a whole bunch of bookings canceled and there were two weeks that sucked. And then things picked up and got back to like decent. And then it's just been going great ever since. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear. And we've shared numbers. It seems like for all of us, Airbnb has been just fine through the pandemic. Anything to add there? I will say with the cabin we purchased, it was an Airbnb, you know, before we purchased it with someone else and they did give us their numbers. And so I know that the Airbnb, like you said, in March struggled and then it just picked right back up. I think everyone was just really unsure of what was going on and just kind of pause their plans. But if you are interested in the strategy I'm using with a vacation rental, things like cabins or beach houses, I think are performing really well. Actually, some people are seeing better performance because people want to get out now. You know, we're getting a little stir crazy, but we want to do it in a safe way. So going somewhere where you're, you know, in your own little cabin in the woods feels like a great vacation right now. We haven't personally been affected by it, but I know it did affect people back in March. In the early days. Yeah. I imagine that the, you know, the New York City apartment isn't doing quite as well as it would have before, but the cabin in the woods. I'd love to book a cabin in the woods right now. That sounds great. Tyler, have you seen anything on the pandemic side? You know, when you talk to somebody that says, well, I'm between jobs, we're between listings right now because we bought the house we're in now last summer. And so we kind of spent the first six to nine months just kind of getting settled in, learning the house, learning the neighborhood, kind of doing those things you do when you move in. 
But the big plans, this has a good connection with my past strategy, was to kind of start out this place the same way we had done other places. So not only renting it out when we were already planning to be gone, or even if the opportunity is good enough, skipping town when it looks like there's a big opportunity, right? <laughs> yep. But also just the fact that we were going to do it around some like big events that were coming up. So in the Milwaukee area, that's where we live now. We moved to Milwaukee and bought this house last year. And there was going to be, this is the pandemic connection, there was going to be two big events in Milwaukee this past year that were going to be my kind of carrot for, all right, Tyler, we need to stand up. We need to stand up this new listing because you've been on the, on the sidelines for a little while. Yep. One was the Democratic National Convention in, well, it was going to be July, and then it was going to be in August, and then it just wasn't altogether. <laughs> and then another one was, for anybody who follows golf, a big like international PGA golf tournament, the Ryder Cup, was going to be hosted at Whistling Straits, which is it's up the road, but it's close enough that people would have for sure stayed here for that. So we never got listed for that. So I need a new carrot. Some of this is just hearing from you all that after things bounce down, they've bounced right back. But, you know, the big piece for us is I think this particular approach that we've used where when we leave, we rent our place when it's open and available. We need to come up with some reasons to make our place open and available. Right. We have been between these four walls in this place for 95 percent of the last nine months. You know, that's something where I'm definitely listening very keenly to these other strategies of like, well, when you own other properties and you're not dependent on sleeping in one of the rooms of the place that you need to rent out. It's a lot easier to then do things like, if needed, shift who you're for. There's a lot of like staycationers now that in the past, you might have been framing your place to be attractive to people coming into town for academic conferences or whatnot. Those are all canceled. Mm -hmm. But you just need to kind of look at the trends in your area. And like I would imagine Alyssa Gatlinburg was already a place that, yes, people kind of came to from around the country. But that is also like, let's drive to Gatlinburg and stay in a cabin right from I don't know, however many hours away and people are more tolerant of those, maybe those four five, six hour drives in a pandemic where it's like, I just want to get away. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So yeah, lots of different impacts from pandemic around here. So the biggest one being we don't go anywhere. So our place isn't available. So that's blind spot of the rent out the place you live in strategy for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the things that I wanted to make sure we shared and you can each talk about how it affects you is just what it has cost us to furnish a place. Something that, you know, you forget about or this that I forgot about. I've never furnished a place from scratch. I like had a small place in college. And then right as I moved, I carried over more things, acquired more stuff and, and continued on. But at least in my case with each of these Airbnbs, they're totally empty when we come into them. And so it's been a whole exercise in trying to furnish them and get them up and running in a cost effective way. I'm like not going out to West Elm and like buying the fanciest stuff because well, I'm not going to use it at all. The people who do use it probably aren't going to treat it that well. But at the same time, I want, it, I want it to be nice. I want it to be comfortable there. So we got it to the point where on each of the townhouses in that fourplex, we're spending between five and $6,000 to furnish each one. So that's two bedrooms, you know, a full kitchen, just like you're buying pots and pans and dishes. And like Black Friday last year, I just went crazy. And our UPS driver was like, what are you doing? Because he was stacking like literally the 32nd Kohl's box in our driveway. And I plan to go absolutely crazy Black Friday again this year. Like whenever things are on sale. You know, it's just things like pillows. When Kohl's has them on sale for $2.75 each, then you buy 30 of them. It's just kind of how this works. But it basically costs a little over $5,000 per unit for the two bedroom places. And then we just did this whole house. Our budget was $18,000 to furnish five bedrooms I think it's 2,600 square feet, maybe somewhere in there. And we ended up being just under $20,000 is what we spent. 
And that includes blinds and, you know, all of this other stuff that adds up really, really quickly. So Alyssa, I know yours came pre-furnished because it was operating as an Airbnb before. What did you end up having to buy? And, and do you know what you spent to get it up and running? Yeah, I think we've spent about, I would say, $500 on things like sheets, towels. I mean, it really does come fully furnished. So including dishes, it had a hot tub, a pool table, all the furniture. It did have some decorations I didn't love. So I got some new decorations. Nice. But yeah, altogether, it's been about $500 to get what we need to make the cabin, you know, work. Yeah. Okay. That's been pretty straightforward. I'm wondering if Airbnb is so lucrative for you and it was previous in Airbnb, why did they want to sell it? They told us it was something to do with taxes, but they ended up, so the one we purchased from them was their first cabin. And then they, you know, got a ton more and they actually build them now. Oh, got it. So I think it was more of like offloading their first cabin to invest in larger ones. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. One thing that I noticed from when I first saw your listing to what you have now is you have new photos. Yes. Yeah. So talk about that. What impact have you seen photos make? Well, so like I said, we were so eager to just get it listed that the first photos I put up were iPhone photos that I just happened to take during the inspection. And I wasn't even thinking about making them look good. So they were pretty bad. And we had people booking it. It was crazy. I thought for sure no one would want it because they were like blurry and terrible. But I will say we had, you know, a professional photographer come in. He even did some cool drone shots. And I think that's made a huge difference. We've seen definitely more bookings, but I think us charging more also makes a lot more sense now. Like I feel a lot more comfortable charging in the 200 range, more so than I did when our photos were terrible. Yeah, that's something that we have always done is we go through and take iPhone photos. Like we get it already, you know, and we take photos and get it listed. And we'll even get it listed and block off some early dates when we know that like, okay, these rooms are done, but like the blinds aren't in yet. And those won't come for another week. You know, and you can't rent out a place that doesn't have blinds, but you can list a place on Airbnb, block off that time. And it's always, you know, us backing up into the corner with our iPhone and snapping a photo of the room. We'll say the iPhone 10 or 11 or whatever with the wide angle lens is really great for those photos. And then usually after we have it fully staged and, you know, you have all the little details and your plants and everything else, then we have a professional photographer come in. And it's just a night and day difference of like, if the place looks at this quality, the photos you take yourself make it look not quite as good. And then you have to be careful because then the photos the professional takes are like, is this even the same place? Like we've had somewhere where like, I think if you run with just this set of photos, it's telling too good of a story and then someone will be disappointed. So you have to like find that balance between amazing photography and accurately representing reality. Yeah, I like that point too of like, it carries over to beyond just photos, but photos are the big one. Like the overpromise, be careful of the overpromise and underdeliver. You know, you're much better off, you know, missing that random booking here and there, maybe because you didn't use that fisheye filter that makes your room look like it's like, you know, 50 feet by 80 feet when it's really, you know, yeah. 10 by 20 or what have you. But we did the same thing. Our like very first listing was with like, I don't know, whatever iPhone existed in 2012. This is iPhone era still. It's not that long ago. Yeah. But it was, yeah, just iPhone photos, get it listed. And then second listing kind of did what you talked about, Nathan, that progressive, like, all right, take your own photos as best you can to get it up. But then it's kind of evolved over time. But Airbnb's always had some kind of a way to connect you with local photographers in the area. Yeah. Because it's in their best interest, too. So I think that was one of the first things the founders learned was like, if the photos are pretty rough, the booking suffers. Other stuff matters. But if the cover of the book isn't pretty enough to get people to stop and click into your listing, 
there's no point in any of the other stuff being set to go. So yeah, photos, photos are a big one. Good stuff. Well, I think that's probably everything that we have for today, other than resources and creators of the day. Alyssa, you want to kick us off with the creator of the day? Yes, I would love to. Let me pull up her Instagram. I am going to talk about my friend who I am just so excited about. Her name is Bex, B-E-X. Y'all see her Instagram? Okay, Nathan? Oh, yeah. Great. So Bex is actually, so when I met her, I knew her as a musician. She's an amazing songwriter and singer, but recently she has become a full-time creator as an illustrator. And her work is so beautiful. It makes me so happy. So if you go to her Instagram, it's maybe Bex, B-E-X. Her new website is It's Bex, and she has some prints for sale. I just got mine in the mail. So if you're looking for some good wall art, I'd highly recommend going to her shop and supporting her. I'm just so excited. It's really fun to see your friends take the leap and become a full-time creator. That's super cool. Yeah, I just followed her on Instagram. All right, Tyler, what do you got for us? Yes, so my creator of the day, I also will share Instagram. So this is Marcus Bridgewater. So on Instagram, he is garden underscore Marcus. So you all see in my Instagram feed over here. I'd like Marcus just kind of like stumbled upon him on Instagram recently because I think of him as like the motivational gardener. But the interesting thing is in his profile here, it's creator, speaker, and educator. Well, you wouldn't think gardener there, but when you look at his feed, kind of the end game is he has a consultancy that does like mindfulness and kind of positivity trainings, whether it's coaching or workshops, things like that. But his feed is basically him in his garden, just like doing gardening, which in and of itself is relaxing. You can kind of see if you're listening to this or watching this in 2020, now or close to now, you know, you need something to kind of relax you. For me, I don't garden, but just but following this guy on Instagram, like automatically calms me as a very calming demeanor. And then on top of that, he connects things like the blossoming of a flower. He'll connect it to like appreciating every step of the process, not just that end game of like the blossoming of it. And he kind of creates this like you wouldn't think it would be their connection back to his business and like positivity and mindfulness training. So just kind of a cool like niche within a niche within a niche of online creators that I'm always like blown away by. Man, of course, that's a thing, but I never would have thought of that. So, yes, this is garden underscore Marcus, Marcus Bridgewater on Instagram. Love it. I don't have a creator today, so I'm going to jump straight to resources. This is not an educational resource. This is a TV show that I really enjoy called Jericho. It came out in 2008, so it is not recent. It was canceled prematurely, like all good TV shows are. And it's on Netflix. Basically, the plot is that this guy, Jake Green, main character, returns to his hometown of Jericho, Kansas. And there, it's like a town of like 4,000 people. There is a terrorist attack where nuclear bombs are detonated in like nine cities around the U.S. And it's just about this little tiny town and how they deal with it. And they go to war with neighboring towns. It's just, it's crazy. It's great. You should check it out, Jericho on Netflix. All right, Alyssa, what do you have for us for a resource? Yeah, my resource would just be if you are interested in the strategy I talked about today with short-term vacation rentals, I'd highly recommend going to the Bigger Pockets podcast and looking for Avery Carl's interview because like I said, she's the real pro at all this. That episode is actually what made us want to do Airbnbs. So you'll learn a lot if you listen. Love it. Tyler? Yep. I have to connect to our conversation about photos, a website. So smartphonephotoguides.com. It is exactly what you think it is. You'll see right when you land on it, there is a smartphone Airbnb photography guide. So this is by Vic 
Fichtner. Hopefully I'm saying it right. But I think you can buy it right there. She's based in Europe. So the price is in like euros, but we can do the conversion there. It's very reasonable. It's like less than 10 euro. And I think it's originally in Portuguese. You can do a translation, but the book itself is in English or you can get an English version. It just kind of helps fast forward you a little bit for that gap period we were talking about where it sounds like we all still recommend the professional photography. But for that first listing or when you want to get things up and running, this has like just those handful of tips that like if you're not in the photography world, you have no clue what you might need to do to make your space look great. So just little tips like you could even see it on the cover of the book if you're watching the video feed here. When we all take pictures of each other, we take them from eye level because you bring the camera to your eyes. When real estate photographers take photos, they almost always are taking them from like waist level, hmm. like 36 inches or so off the ground. There's all kinds of psychological reasons why. But if you ever look at real estate photography, you'll notice, oh, yeah, now that I've said that, these pictures are all taken from like slightly lower or just a very you know, diminutive person was taking the photo. But it's full of like plenty of tips to be worth the 10 euro or whatever that is in US to kind of pony up for that upfront, especially when you're talking about bringing in hundreds or thousands of dollars a month in the near term with your listing. So that is smartphonephotoguides.com. Love it. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us, everyone. Thanks to you two for coming on. And I hope everyone considers trying out an Airbnb as a side hustle if they've had that interest. We don't want to force it on anyone. But if you've always wondered that you've thought about doing it, then like give it a try. Everyone that I know has done it has had a really great experience. And it's a good way as you're still doing your main creative focus to have sort of this thing in the background that's building wealth. And like Alyssa, I'm really inspired by the such a small amount of time that you spend on yours. So I think other people could do the same. For sure. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. All right. See y'all later. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to The Future Belongs to Creators. We're the makers of ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. ConvertKit is the best way to launch or grow your next creative project. To start building your audience with a landing page and to send emails up to 500 subscribers for free, go to landingpage.new. That's landingpage.new to get started with the free ConvertKit account today. We'll see you next time.